0: It is Friday, November eleventh, twenty 2022, 11, 11 22. Happy Friday. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com, and a Fox News contributor, host of this program, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday. We have a podcast that is free on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Many ways to listen live. The podcast also available on the weekend. Bonus Benson, so please do check that out. We have a very busy show ahead. Peter Ducey will be joining us live from Cambodia. He's traveling with the president. We'll get the latest from Peter. Jason Rance, our friend from Seattle at KTTH, our affiliate, he will be here, bringing us a few updates from the Pacific Northwest, most of which are not good electorally. Although there's one piece of good news that just broke. A few moments ago, we will probably get to that later this hour. Charles C.W. Cook in our middle hour as well. We'll talk about the Redding of Florida, where he lives, plus a a court in Texas tossing out as unconstitutional the power grab, the student loan forgiveness scheme, the bailout. That happened just yesterday. Charles has been on a righteous tear against that abuse of power We'll get his reaction to that court's decision, which I think is the right one, and maybe a few other topics as well. And then in our last hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, Kat Timpf is here, Fridays with Kat. I'm sure we'll be up to all sorts of nonsense and hijinks, so please stay tuned for that. I want to open the show today. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. I don't really want to open the show with this. I don't really want to talk about this, but we're going to. Because I think we have to. Last night, I was on special report on the panel, and we had different topics. President Biden's comments about the elections, latest vote counts, that kind of thing. And right before we were going to go on, President Trump put out a long screed. Former president putting on his truth social feed this just rant for the world to see. And I read through it in the green room, getting ready for the panel. I read it to my fellow panelists who hadn't seen it yet, Mark Thies and Mara Liason. And then we got out on set with Brett and he said, well, I think we probably have to talk about this. So we kind of broomed aside the plan and just talked about it. And I got a few of my comments in, but nowhere near a complete take. So let me just begin by saying this. And I've said something to this effect before, and I will probably end up saying it again. Especially because next week, former President Trump is expected widely to declare that he is going to run for the presidency again. Two years from now. So he'd be campaigning for two years. If, as expected, he announces on Tuesday at Mar-a-Lago that he's launching this campaign. I've always been extremely transparent with all of you. With the audience, with my readership at Town Hall, I haven't tried to hide the football. I haven't tried to present one front while secretly pursuing some kind of agenda that I wasn't revealing. I like to just tell you where I am, tell you how I'm feeling, how I think about something, and then you can agree or disagree. I'm just not going to play games with you. And I hope even when you disagree, sometimes perhaps passionately, you at least respect the fact that I'm leveling with you and not trying to manipulate you. So I said I am not a Trump guy. I've never been a Trump guy. Didn't vote for him in 2016. He wasn't in my top, whatever, 16, 17 choices for president in the primary. I, of course, wasn't going to pull the lever for the Democrats. Crooked H, one of his more amusing nicknames. That was not going to happen. 2020, I came a lot closer to supporting him. Ultimately, didn't not because I was displeased with most of the outcomes of his presidency. It was him, his character, and some of the things that I worried about that, in my mind, were then vindicated and then some on January 6th. And what happened there? Of course, I did not vote for Sleepy Joe. Also not a bad nickname. But even if you want to consider me, quote-unquote, never Trump, which I was very loudly during the 2016 primaries, which in some ways feels like ancient history is a long time ago. I was not Trump deranged. Once he became president, it's like, okay, he won. Probably better than Hillary Clinton being president, that's for sure. So let's see how he does. And rather than being never Trump or always Trump, because you know there are people out there who will defend and justify anything that he does, anything that he says. They will contort themselves into pretzels, embarrass themselves, reverse themselves just to defend him. That's the always Trump category. Then there's the never Trump category, really the Trump deranged category, people doing the same type of machinations and mental gymnastics, where they're all of a sudden criticizing things that they've at least ostensibly supposedly believed their whole lives but because Trump was doing it well they couldn't say a boy." they couldn't say that's good they couldn't support it they were so fanatically against him that they completely changed themselves just sort of remade their entire public image around this almost personality trait of hating Donald Trump I wasn't going to do that I was going to be sometimes Trump. If he was doing stuff that I liked and advancing the ball for the Constitution, for freedom, for the country, I would be there cheering and applauding. And when he wasn't, when he was doing things that I disagreed with, I would say so. I wouldn't rail against him all the time. I would pick my spots. There's no point in like, you know, constantly yelling and screaming about something. You have to kind of make... Judicious decisions about when to use your platform to criticize someone who overall, at least in policy outcomes, you're agreeing with, right? There's some strategy there. So when I felt like I had to speak out in some sort of a negative way or critique something, I would. And I would catch some hell for it. That's fine. And when I would praise him, I would also catch hell from other people being like, you know, I thought that you were better than this. And now you're a cheerleader and a hack for this guy. No. No. I just tried to be intellectually honest and have some political, ideological integrity. That's what I've tried to do. For better or for worse, success, failure, that's not really for me to decide. That's for you to decide. I can just tell you what I've tried. So, for instance, last night, and I'll talk about this at the end of the show, I was at an event here in D.C., Federalist Society event, where there were four Supreme Court justices in attendance, three of whom were nominated by President Trump all of whom are superb justices. I will be forever grateful to President Trump for those picks, for standing behind them, even when it was tough, especially with Kavanaugh. That is a huge part of his legacy that I am 100% supportive of and will be for a very long time. And I hope they all serve for decades. Huge. Huge. And you can go down the list on deregulation, the way the economy was going, the tax cuts, moving the embassy to Jerusalem in Israel, which a bunch of presidents from both parties promised to do. None of them ever had the stones to actually do it because things got complicated when they actually got into office. And Trump said, no, we're doing it. And he did it. The Soleimani hit. I mean, there's a whole list of things that I really like that Trump did. The reason I'm talking about all of this and this huge preamble to the unhinged statement he put out about Ron DeSantis yesterday is I just want to sort of lay the groundwork here. I'm not someone who is just like viscerally, instinctively hateful of everything that Trump does. Now, am I someone who is going to be eager for him to run for president again? No. I think it's time to move on. I was never super fully on board to begin with. I think he served a very important purpose. I'm glad he was elected in 2016, looking back, given the alternative and given what happened over those four years. I am looking for a new generation of leadership that can continue a lot of his legacies, but also find ways to keep his base and the people that he energized in a new way into the party, keep them in the party keep them in the movement, whatever you want to call it, and then also attract some of the people back that have been lost and some other people who are persuadable. And by the way, those people are important, as we have just learned and been reminded of, I should probably say, this week on Tuesday. A lot of those people broke against the Republicans and prevented the type of wave that I think historically absolutely should have been the case, given all the circumstances and the absolute disaster that the Democrats have presided over in this country for the last two years. So that's the type of person that I want to be thinking about for 2024. I am not looking forward to next week. I'm not looking forward to the announcement from Trump. I'm not looking forward to two years of his, of his campaigning, his attacks, his drama, all of this stuff that he does. I'm kind of exhausted by it. I know there are some of you out there mad at me for saying this. You love him. You want him to run. Some of the things that you're, you know, that you've thought about me in the past, you're like, oh, here he goes again. I can't stand this guy. So holier than thou, establishment, rhino, whatever the word, I've heard it all. You're entitled to those opinions. That's not how I try to be, but again, it's not for me to decide. I also know, by the way, That there's an awful lot of you, probably a growing number of you based on the messages that I'm getting. Who have been huge Trump supporters in the past, who have voted for him twice, who've donated to him, who've campaigned, gone to the rallies, fans. Who are getting sick of this stuff, too. Or are just sort of maybe not angry about it, but just grimacing and saying, why? Why is he doing things like out of nowhere attacking Ron DeSantis? after this huge win that DeSantis earned in Florida, when there's still a midterm season that is open because of the Georgia runoff that's coming in a few weeks, there are people who are just kind of like, oh, I wish he wouldn't. Problem is the wishing never works. This is what he does. This is who he is. And a lot of people are either totally fed up with it or are getting to the point where they're kind of like, you know what? Kudos to the guy, really like him, great president, did a lot for the country, but maybe it's time. Maybe we don't really need more of this. We have people in this audience with different perspectives on this, and I want to respect the people who have different views on this. I think a lot of the critiques of Trump and the commentary about Trump sometimes directly or indirectly disrespects people who voted for him once or both times. And I think people had very good reasons to vote for him the first time. And certainly the second time, I don't want to be disrespectful to his supporters, including those supporters in this audience, but also respecting you as the audience requires me as far as I'm concerned, to tell the truth about what I believe. That's why I'm here. So when we come back from the break, I'm going to read to you what the former president wrote on his post yesterday. He's also followed up with a few more. He's going after Glenn Youngkin in Virginia for some reason. And I want to respond to a lot of it over the course of this hour. This was not the way I wanted to spend the Friday of election week. But this is now, I think, the number one story in American politics because it is previewing a rumble – that I would say is coming, but maybe it's already here in a lot of respects. So burying my head in the sand, saying like, oh, well, let's just wait. He's not waiting. So here we are. We'll tell you what he said or remind you if you've already heard it. And then react, analyze, etc. Coming up, plus all the guests we got to. Straight ahead on this Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show from the Fox News Podcasts Network.
1: I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.
0: I'm Guy Benson, we're back. In the last segment, I offered a lengthy prelude to reading this statement from Donald Trump about Ron DeSantis that he put out last evening, and then I will break it down in the segments to come. It's pretty long, so let me read it to you. This was last evening, starting with this, quote, News Corp, which is Fox, the Wall Street Journal, and the no longer great New York Post, is all in for Governor Ron DeSantis, an average Republican governor with great public relations who didn't have to close up his state but did, unlike other Republican governors. Whose overall numbers for a Republican were just average, middle of the pack, including COVID. Who has the advantage of sunshine, where people from badly run states up north would go no matter who the governor was, just like I did. Kind of hard to read this is because it's so rambling and some issues with the grammar and the punctuation, but I'm doing my best. He goes on. Ron came to me in desperate shape in 2017. He was politically dead losing in a landslide to a very good agriculture commissioner, Adam Putnam, who is loaded up with cash and great poll numbers. Ron had low approval, bad polls, no money. But he said that if I would endorse him, capital E, endorse, he could win. I didn't know Adam, so I said, let's give it a shot, Ron. When I endorsed him, it was as though, to use a bad term, a nuclear weapon went off. Years later, they were the exact words that Adam Putnam used in describing Ron's endorsement. He said, I went from having it made with no competition to immediately getting clobbered after your endorsement. I then got Ron by the star of the Democrat Party, Andrew Gillum, who was later revealed to be a crackhead, by having two massive rallies with tens of thousands of people at each one. I also fixed his campaign, which had completely fallen apart. I was all in for Ron, and he beat Gillum. But after the race, capital R, race, when votes were being stolen by the corrupt election process in Broward County and Ron was going down 10,000 votes a day, along with now Senator Rick Scott, I sent in the FBI and U.S. attorneys, and the ballot theft immediately ended just prior to them running out of the votes necessary to win. I stopped his election from being stolen, Trump claims. And now, he writes, Ron DeSanctimonious is playing games, exclamation point. The fake news asks him if he's going to run for president. And if President Trump runs, would he run? He says, I'm only focused on the governor's race. I'm not looking into the future. Well, in terms of loyalty and class, that's not really the right answer. Trump writes, this is just like 2015 and 2016, a media assault collusion. When Fox News fought me to the end until I won and they couldn't have been nicer or more supportive, the Wall Street Journal loved low-energy Jeb Bush and a succession of other people as they rapidly disappeared from sight, finally falling in line with me after I easily knocked them out one by one. We're in exactly the same position now. They will keep coming after us, MAGA, but ultimately we will win, put America first, make America great again, exclamation point. That is what Trump put out on his social media platform yesterday. Ron DeSantis, meanwhile, was tweeting hurricane preparedness trips as another storm was bearing down on Florida. He was doing his day job, doing it well. Trump was shouting into the abyss on this stuff. It does not sit well with me at all. I'll break it down and explain why right after this on The Guy Benson Show.
2: the guy benson show
0: welcome back all right so i read you the statement in the last segment from former president trump about ron desantis out of nowhere there is a storm heading to florida yesterday that's what desantis was focused on as he should have been they have now been repairing some of the damage and that's what desantis is focused on today Trump, meanwhile, his brain was wandering off to other areas. Of course, the principal line of thought being about himself, his ambitions, what he wants, as always. He's about to apparently announce for president again. I think it's bad timing for him for a number of reasons. Strategically, I think he should wait just from his perspective. But he's got it in his head. He's waited this long. He wanted to do it before the midterms. And now he's going to do it. Like, you know, guess what? His choice is fine. But it seems like it's eating away at him that Ron DeSantis might at some point decide to also run for president. And he has just been going after him before the election. Even he came up with the DeSanctimonious nickname, which I think is not really that good. But he test drove that. And then he was posting a few things, criticizing DeSantis. And then out came this thing last night. I just want to unpack a little bit of it. He calls DeSantis an average Republican governor, which is a subjective measure. Maybe you agree that DeSantis is just average. I would disagree. The people of Florida would disagree. He didn't win an average re-election. He won the biggest re-election in the history of the state. He won by almost 20 points. Unheard of. Unheard of. Trump won that state by three points two years ago. On his way to losing nationally, he won Florida by three points against Joe Biden. He won by, I think, a point against Hillary Clinton, arguably the worst major party presidential candidate in modern American history. He had Hillary and Biden back to back. Those are not exactly like a murderer's row of likable, brilliant political talent. He beat Hillary barely with the inside straight. Then he lost to Biden. He did win Florida both times, narrowly. DeSantis won it even more narrowly in 2018 by less than a point, And then he governed for four years and he won by almost 20 points. And given the slings and arrows that DeSantis took, and we talked about them all the time on this show, the attacks, especially from the national media, the national Democrats. I saw the governor of Colorado was taking pot shots, inaccurate ones at DeSantis, about the economy in Florida, which is better than Colorado's for sure governor newsom out in california i mean these guys clearly are afraid of him politically the news media smearing him inventing stories all these lies desantis fought them every step of the way in a very smart disciplined informed methodical response to me nothing about any of that is average but again that's subjective Trump says that DeSantis didn't have to close up his state, but he did, unlike other Republican governors, talking about COVID. This is a truly bizarre one. This actually is echoes of what Charlie Crist, the Democrat, in this most recent election against DeSantis, attempted. Remember in the debate, Charlie Crist tried to make it seem like Ron DeSantis was like the shutdown governor, (laughs) which is just like a ludicrous thing. Charlie Crist wanted everything shut down a lot longer with all sorts of mandates and requirements and all of that. But I guess he realized that was not playing well. His position was not defensible in Florida. So he was going to try to turn it around and say like, well, DeSantis was really the shutdown guy. When Florida is one of the first states to start to reopen, they got it exactly right on getting schools back open. DeSantis led and he got endless attacks for it, but he knew the data. He actually followed it closely and he made tough, correct decisions. That is a huge part of the legacy of this governorship. For Chris to try this pathetic attack didn't work. He, of course, got destroyed on Tuesday. And now here's Trump reiterating the same attack. Oh, yeah. This, Ron DeSantis shut down the state. He closed it up. He didn't have to. Uh, well, excuse me. Aside from DeSantis's leadership on COVID and, like, No one can gaslight me, or I think the public, into believing that Ron DeSantis was governor. shutdown. He was vilified for being exactly the opposite. And they hated him even more because he was right, based on the data and based on the science. But back when states started to reopen, Donald Trump, who was president at the time, attacked some of the Republicans who did that. Particularly, it comes to mind, Brian Kemp, one of many times that DeSantis went after Kemp. As it turns out, to no avail. But remember that? Fauci said, tsk, tsk, no, no, bad Georgia, bad Florida. And Trump was on Fauci' side. He was like on that team, Team Fauci at the time. Now Trump eventually came around on some of this stuff and got it right on reopening schools and the need to reopen schools, and because Trump was saying it and DeSantis was doing it, a bunch of liberals decided to do the opposite, so-called progressives, harming a bunch of kids in the process, indefensible. But to pretend like it was Trump at the forefront of that and not DeSantis is exactly wrong. And Trump was, it's on the record. Trump and Fauci together criticizing guys like Kemp for reopening too soon. So later on, he goes on and tells this whole long story. I mean, like this long run-on paragraph about 2017, ahead of the 2018 gubernatorial primary for governor, right? Well, that's redundant. Where Adam Putnam, a name I hadn't thought of in a while, was the establishment sort of mainstream pick for governor. DeSantis was going to run against him. DeSantis was going to run for Senate in 2016, because Rubio was running for president, DeSantis was running for Senate, and then when Rubio was going to lose the presidential primary, the party wanted him to get back into the Senate race. They asked DeSantis to stand aside. Being a team player for the party, DeSantis agreed, checked his ego, checked his ambitions, ran for re-election in the House, vacated that race for Senate. Rubio got back in and won handily. So now DeSantis said, okay, a couple years later, I don't want to be in the House of Representatives. I'm going to run for governor. He was way behind. Now, I think some of the story that Trump tells here about how desperate it was and how every single thing was because of Trump and DeSantis was nothing without Trump and I did this and I did that. and all. I think there's probably a mix of truth and exaggeration and maybe outright falsehoods. That's kind of a mix that we're used to from Donald Trump. But here's the point that I want to make. Because I don't dispute if Trump had not intervened and endorsed Ron DeSantis for governor in that primary, I think Adam Putnam would have been the nominee. And who knows what would have happened in the general election, which was extremely close. DeSantis needed that endorsement. He got it. And to a very large extent, DeSantis owes Trump a big debt of gratitude for that endorsement and for helping him. I think that is beyond dispute. Trump is right about that. But even if you grant Trump every single one of the points that he makes about what he did for Ron, and I helped Ron, and I did this, and even if you want to believe every single element of the bravado, my response then becomes this. So what? He helped DeSantis get over the line and become the nominee He helped DeSantis win the election. DeSantis thanked Trump. DeSantis backed Trump in 2016. Of course, very strongly in 2020 as well. So what? At that point, DeSantis then had to become the chief executive of a very important state, and his fate was in his own hands. Trump helped him get there. That's how endorsements and political alliances work. But then once you're there, you've got to deliver. And Ron DeSantis has delivered in spades for the people of Florida, which is why they just elected him to a second term by an absolutely breathtaking margin. If DeSantis had been average, as Trump says, or below average or whatever, we wouldn't be having this conversation. DeSantis wouldn't be in the conversation, I think, or in the discussion in a major way about big, big players and 2024 threats. Not so much to Trump, that's part of it, but to the Democrats. The way that the media and the Democrats, and I would also add the hardcore anti-Trump, never-Trump derangement pundit crew, including people who pretend to be conservatives, they're all rooting for Trump against DeSantis because they want Trump again so they can beat him again. They don't want DeSantis because they're scared of DeSantis. It's so obvious to see these people who pretend that Donald Trump is a unique threat to democracy itself. If they believe that they should be cheering on anyone who has a chance of beating Trump. But they're not for Ron DeSantis. They're sort of gleefully enjoying the shots that Trump is taking. They're all tweeting about Ron DeSantis. What a great nickname. Oh, Ron DeSantis has he's got a glass jaw. He's unproven. Well, he's proven himself for four years in the face of all this hate from you people. But to see them sort of rubbing their hands together on Trump's side, on Trump's behalf against DeSantis, I think tells you something very valuable. It's a tell. It's a very big tell. But that's a slight diversion. DeSantis was going to sink or swim on his own performance, and he has performed extremely well. We aren't in 2016 anymore. We aren't in 2017 or 2018 anymore. We're in 2022. He just won by 20 on a night where Republicans broadly underperformed, including certain types of Republicans, more in the Trumpy lane of things, I would argue. And DeSantis has a record of achievements on legislation, leadership, all the COVID stuff, the storm that they just went through. He has built that up. That is the new reality. That's the reality that he presented to voters who endorsed it very strongly. Talk about an important endorsement. The people of Florida, by the millions, endorsed Ron DeSantis for re-election. So all the backward-looking, look what I did for him in the past, look at all this stuff to me, is irrelevant. Did the guy do well? Is he well-suited to continue that leadership at the next level? Like, doesn't really matter if it's his turn or if the establishment wants him to run or not. People need to make judgments on who their leaders ought to be. And I think all the backward-looking, but, you know, credit-taking, look what I did for you, why are you such an ingrate? It's just so myopic and self-centered. Who cares? Besides, like, Trump and a small group of people, like, who cares? Results are what matter. Not just results in terms of policy, results in terms of elections, winning. Who can win? I'm not sure Ron DeSantis has ever lost an election. We know Donald Trump has a really important one that was winnable. Then came January 6th. Now all of this crazy deranged stuff where he seems like the guardrails are off, some of his more responsible handlers and advisors are gone. So we have just got like we're mainlining Donald Trump's id right now with a lot of these posts. And maybe some people still like the thrill is not gone. They eat up every word of it. I think for a lot of people, they're kind of getting past it. And even if they're sort of still tempted and kind of enjoy it, they also want to win. And there are serious doubts about whether Trump can do that nationally again, when he'll be, what, pushing 80 with all the other baggage. So I'm willing to concede. I, I don't know if it's all true. I would imagine it's exaggerated or embellished in some ex, you know to some extent in some respects. But I'm willing to just grant, okay, let's say Trump made Ron DeSantis' career in 2018 To me, it is immaterial heading into 2023 and 2024. Like if there's a bruised ego, okay, that's not something that I think voters need to really care that much about. I tweeted a GIF from the movie Mean Girls where the chief blonde mean girl is mad that the Lindsay Lohan character is overtaking her in popularity in the high school setting. And she's ranting. She's so mad that this is happening. And she says, I like invented her. You know what I mean? That's the vibe that we're getting here from Trump. Then he goes on toward the end of the statement that I read in the last segment. Talking about how DeSantis has demurred whenever he's been asked about whether he would consider running in 2024. DeSantis... Ducks it and sort of punts the question into the future, which I think is the right call when you're running for re-election for governor, when you've got things on your plate, legislative session coming up, storms hitting your state. You don't have to go out. there. I know Trump is like itching and can't help himself. He, he can't wait to tell everyone, look at me. I want the attention. Me, me, me. Other people have different timelines, different levels of discipline. Let's put it that way. They might be more strategic. They might be weighing things and waiting, which is sometimes prudent, before making a decision. So DeSantis has sort of declined to get into all of that. And Trump says, quote, in terms of loyalty and class, that's not really the right answer. I would submit to you that I'm not sure Ron DeSantis or anyone else should be terribly interested in lectures about loyalty or class from this particular source. Trump closes with this thing. It's just like 2015-2016 redux. All these people are against me. I'm going to knock them off one by one, and we're going to prevail. Now, he might be right about that, especially in the Republican primary, if he's running for president, as expected. If you have 16 to 20 people or whatever it is running again, we've seen the movie before. Trump has the unflinching support of probably about a third of the Republican base. So if you've got a pie split up even eight ways, let alone 12 or 16, the guy with the biggest slice is going to be Donald Trump. So the more people who get into the race, the better it is for Trump, which is why I think he's also making a mistake from his own selfish perspective getting in so soon, chasing some people out of the race who now won't run because of that. But who am I to tell him what to do? But he might be right. If a bunch of people decide to run, I think that there's a very tiny handful of people, and maybe just one, who actually has a realistic chance of beating Trump in a Republican primary, someone who can cobble together a coalition of the base with credibility, plus some more moderate or old school or traditional conservative, plus some maybe independents. That's a tough Needle to thread these days. I think there might be one guy who can do it, which is why Trump is firing at him preemptively. Mr. Counterpuncher, right? He said, oh, we only counterpunch. We only punch back when we've been attacked. DeSantis hasn't done squat to attack Donald Trump. Nothing. This is a preemptive strike because he's nervous about DeSantis. He's trying to draw him into this. If a bunch of other people get into the race, that's advantage Trump. That's another conversation for another day. I will just say this before I go to break. DeSantis is doing his job right now. He's focusing on Florida and the storm and what's directly in front of him. That's the right response. Do not respond to this stuff. Stay quiet. Trump can scream his head off about it. DeSantis can ignore it, respond in due time. And I think he's smart enough to exercise that game plan, and we'll see what he has in store. That's my take on what has happened so far, and I'm sure there's more to come. We'll be talking about it. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show.
0: Apologies, I went super long in the last segment. Another hour coming up. Do see Rance and Cook straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us.
2: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free. Every day, follow us on social, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert. The Dow closes just a little bit better than even, up 33 points, ending the week at 33,748. We'll get to our guests here in just a moment. Just a quick update on some political races. Nothing called in Nevada as we're waiting on some big results from those big statewide races. I will say that the Republican leads are shrinking. The gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side, Lombardo, has a bigger lead than Adam Laxalt for Senate. And the Democrats are making a comeback with this last batch of votes coming in, mail votes. So we'll see. Those could be photo finishes. Less confident than I was about that even yesterday. Meanwhile, in Arizona, still waiting on hundreds of thousands of ballots to be counted, which is just insane to me. I think Kerry Lake has a decent chance of winning. Blake Masters, a much longer shot in the Senate race there. In fact, Dave Wasserman has called that one for Mark Kelly, the Democratic incumbent. That would be another incumbent from both parties to win. Not a single sitting senator or governor from either party in the whole country has lost yet this cycle, which is uh, pretty astonishing. One other quick note. In Oregon, a Republican candidate in a congressional district has flipped a seat in Oregon from blue to red, Big win for the Republicans as they are trying to lock down a House majority. I would say that the likelihood of a Republican House majority is better than ever. And there's a few more races that we're waiting to look at. There's one in Colorado that's close, a couple in California. But so far, so good for the Republicans. Nowhere near what they had in mind. Not even close. But a majority is looking likely. I'm thinking in the ballpark of 220 to 223 still. We shall see and we'll monitor over the weekend. Joining us now, live from Phnom Penh, Cambodia, is our colleague, Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News, traveling with the president. Peter, good to have you back. Good Saturday morning to you, Guy. (laughs) He's speaking to us from the future, and I'm confident this is the first ever guest we have welcomed from Cambodia, so we're making some history here on the Guy Benson Show. Peter, (laughs) why is the president over there right now? What's on the agenda?
3: They're going to have this ASEAN summit here in Cambodia, where basically they're going to gather a bunch of Southeast Asian countries and leaders to try to convince them to do business with the U.S. and not China. And there will be later in the week a Biden and Xi meeting when we move on to Indonesia uh, and Bali. So props to whoever picks the locations for this trip. <laughs> um, but but basically he's coming. Uh, there will be some talk about North Korean nuclear threats. Uh, but the the big picture is just hey, China is uh, make, trying to make inroads with you guys. Uh, we'd like we'd like a shot as well to not let them just completely uh, take over this part of the world.
0: So that's the Cambodian part of the swing. You mentioned Indonesia and Bali. I've actually been to Bali. Peter, I I wonder if you might get your hair braided the way that they sometimes do. I guess we'll see when you're back on the air upon your return. But when (laughs) those world leaders get together in Indonesia, obviously some huge issues outstanding. We've seen some updates in Russia and and Ukraine specifically, some some more retreats from the Russians. I'd imagine that will be a subject of conversation, among other things, the economy, global inflation, uh, energy production and that sort of thing. What is the White House previewing for Bali? Well, the
3: the big focus is becoming this uh, meeting on the sidelines with Biden and Xi. And it, it's really interesting because Corinne Jean-Pierre is not telling us any specific issues that the two of them are going to talk about. But she's saying this meeting is required so that Biden and Xi can deepen their communication, which is very confusing to me because – Last week on the campaign trail, we heard President Biden bragging about how he has spent more time with Xi than any world leader ever. And so why now do they need to deepen their communication ties? Like, why is he talking about all this time that he spent with Xi if he or the U.S. don't benefit from that at all? Because that's what it
0: sounds like. Yeah, that's a good question. Um I wonder if she could answer it. I'm not necessarily convinced that there would be a good persuasive answer forthcoming, but I guess that's the uh, that's the top-of-mind answer, if you will, that they've come up with, uh, deepening ties or deepening communications. Got it. Meanwhile, Peter, from a political perspective here back home, we heard from the president following the midterm elections. Obviously, the Democrats are feeling like they have survived in a way that they were absolutely uh, not expecting to. I know Biden said that he was always optimistic. Uh, Apparently that's not really true. Uh, He wasn't really planning to talk about the elections right after, but then things went the way that they did. And they said, actually, you know what, he's going to talk after all. But is there a sense to your eye, to your ear, that there's maybe an extra pep in the step of the president or the administration around the relative electoral success that their party enjoyed on Tuesday? Oh, totally, because... President
3: Biden is saying he is not going to do anything differently. Uh, And he thinks, but again, you go back to like a week ago, he was telling voters that this batch of elections, nationwide elections was not going to be a referendum on him. But then the elections happen, and he comes out and says, you know what? The results show that I don't have to do anything differently and I'm not going to. And so I, I think he does have a pep in his step, and these international trips are his bread and butter, because he's the one who came in saying, oh, we have to restore dignity on the world stage after four years of somebody shaking things up too much, and so uh, the combo of the midterms not being as bad for Dems as they thought, and just getting to go and sit in these meetings with his counterparts, I, I think there is a there's a lot more enthusiasm here uh, than they were planning on.
0: A question that he gets a lot, and he keeps coming back with the same answer, I intend to run again in 2024. He's added a little bit more color, saying uh, that'll be a decision early next year. We're going to talk about it with the family, but he intends to run. I know a lot of people are out there saying there's no way that he can. He's too old. He's slowing down too much. But I do think that maybe the midterm outcome has – maybe breathe new life into the idea that perhaps he could run again after all. I think he wants to. I think it's other people who don't want him to. That's my theory of it. I'm not asking you to weigh in one way or another on on my theory, Peter, but I would imagine if you are of the mindset that Biden wants to run again, what happened on Tuesday is probably helpful to that cause in some way. Yeah, it is helpful. And look, I think
3: this is an easy one. He says he wants to run, and he intends to run. And so without a clear successor and with uh, the opportunity to potentially, in these narrow House majorities uh, for Republicans or Democrats, uh, to potentially get something big done uh, in what would otherwise be lame duck years, um, I, I, I think he will run in 2024. And, um, you, you know, the age questions are, are going to be there potentially
0: with several yeah, other people. They'll linger. They'll be there, Peter. That's for sure. But it's interesting that you think he is going to run. I, that's what he's saying. So we'll watch it for sure. Peter Ducey, live in Cambodia, traveling with the president. Peter, thank you so much. Jason Rance, up next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you very much for joining us. With us once again is Jason Rantz, host of The Jason Rantz Show, KTTH in Seattle, Tacoma, our great affiliate out there. He's also a crime correspondent for The Tucker Carlson Show, Tucker Carlson Tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Jason, good to have you back. Thank you for having me.
4: I wish it was under different circumstances.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but here we are. So you and I spoke a few different times ahead of the elections, and there was some hope out in the Pacific Northwest that things might be different this time. And based on the way things were going, really, most places in the country, with a few good exceptions for the Republicans, it became clear, I think even before the polls closed out there, that it was not probably going to be that kind of night in Washington State or Oregon. And so far, it seems like the Democrats are just doing what they usually do out there, maybe with one House race that I saw in Oregon being an exception, but uh, maybe not. Give us the overhead view of what happened in your neck of the woods.
4: What happened was the polls were all incorrect, and the momentum that we were feeling was just simply not enough. We saw a day of voting for Democrats across Washington state surge in a way that we've quite frankly, haven't seen for decades. And the day of surge that we normally see for Republicans just didn't happen. When you go into certain counties, Washington State, without getting too much into the, the weeds here, the red counties did not show up in the numbers that they normally do. And the blue districts showed up in slightly larger numbers than anticipated. And obviously, that is not a good recipe for a victory for, for Republicans here. I think in particular, when you look for Tiffany Smiley, she ran one of the best campaigns not just in Washington state, but arguably around the country in a blue state. And she just got pummeled. And it it tells us that Washington state right now still is irredeemably blue. And the same could be said for much of Oregon. I think there are always going to be some small wins that you can point to and and show some success. We're still waiting to see what our state legislature is going to look like. Uh, Republicans won't gain control here, which is obviously extremely disappointing given the direction that we've been going, but it, it might be a little bit tighter than it has been in the past, which is a positive. We saw in Oregon and Portland the biggest anti-police nut job and joanne hardesty on the portland city council or the commission she lost to a complete newcomer who took the complete opposite approach on some of the issues that she did so that is you know that that is a little bit of a some good news in a generally bad news week
0: i'm trying to figure out because i can understand you know if you're in a very blue state a very blue place and the democrats are screaming down the stretch here about democracy in peril and all of that and The polls show that it might be rough, and the Murray campaign, they put out, I remember on Election Day, some memo about how concerned they were and how it could take Mm -hmm. days to decide. Of course, it didn't. It took a few hours. It became clear what was going to happen. But maybe that stuff motivated the Democratic base to come out more strongly than conservatives had hoped for. What I don't understand is the redder areas of the state not coming out in full force. In a season and a year like this, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, what else would be necessary for that kind of a backlash to materialize, at least among the Republican base, such as it exists in a state like Washington? That's a head scratcher to me. It
4: is until you live here, and <laughs> then you get a better sense, I think. There's two issues that, that come into play regardless of what's going on externally with any of the issues. Number one, there is <clears throat> amongst the Republicans here a, a rather – it's still a small group of Republicans, but they're very vocal in their distrust of our election system with mail-in voting. They believe that mail-in voting is all a scam, that it makes it incredibly easy to steal elections, and while there's been clearly some instances of of illegal voting, it's been caught. It hasn't been even remotely close to change elections, but when you have that kind of uh, system in place that can be easily – criticized by some folks it could convince people not to vote and i've been concerned about that for several years at this point it's obviously become a bigger issue over the last six years i just think that that depresses the vote
0: and it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy too because like oh well i don't trust the vote so maybe it's not worth it so maybe i won't do it and so if they're not then voting and their votes would count and it would help They're not doing it, whereas all the Democrats, you know, mail-in voting is like a religion to them. They're like, yes, yes, mail in the votes. This is what we Mm -hmm. do. That just ends up compounding the issue, compounding their advantage.
4: Yeah, and then when they lose because they didn't show up, they'll say, see, it shows you how system how the system is screwed up and, and easy to manipulate. No, right. it's because you made it really, really easy. And I've been telling folks for a while, look, if you think that the system is going to be stolen or the election is going to be stolen, then don't make it easy by sitting it out. Make it really, really difficult. And unfortunately, there are too many people who just refuse to vote. On top of that, there is this feeling that no matter what happens, the state will never change. And I think that that also depresses the vote. And it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy. At the same time, we've had about 90,000 Republicans from Washington state leave the state entirely. They're Mm -hmm. going to Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Idaho. And what ends up happening is in some of these House races or state Senate races – you end up losing by just a couple hundred votes. And there are a few districts right now where the Republican is down by just a few hundred votes. And all of that ends up coming into play. And, you know, it's it's great for the people who get to escape uh, deep blue Washington and live in a more uh, sane state like Texas or Florida, but it, it kind of hurts some of the, the, the folks here who could actually make some significant changes. Now, now that said, again, we still don't have... Uh, a good portion of the votes t- having been counted. We've got about 600,000 or so votes. Which is ridiculous. It is is 100 percent ridiculous. Here's what's more ridiculous. Today, while some counties will report, a lot of counties aren't because of the holiday, and so they're delaying until tomorrow some of the votes or in some cases until Monday. It's absolutely ludicrous, and as much as I don't lean into the the conversation about how these systems are easy to manipulate, this makes it very easy to have distrust in the system. They should be working nonstop, but what they end up doing is they release a batch of votes one time a day it 's never at the time that they say they 're going to release it it 's embarrassing it 's twenty twenty two we 're in Washington state. go to Amazon, go to Microsoft, get some engineer they 're going to be looking for a job soon anyway to try to figure this out and get some technology that makes it easy to track
0: yeah or just do what Florida does and it works perfectly well very well on time immediately it 's just it 's totally obnoxious to me and, and insane. And crazy that anyone still does it the way that a number of these states do it, where it's days and days and days and days of counting and waiting and everything that you just described. But I think your point is right about some people voting with their feet, a lot of them across the country. This is part of the great sort, where people are going to places that more align with their values, and red places are getting redder, and therefore blue places are getting bluer. And the polarization of the country gets deeper for that reason, and... I think that there are positive elements to that. I think there are definitely negative elements to that in terms of our society and our country. And I think that's one of those big meta trends that we should be watching yeah. closely because of the reasons that you just laid out. Jason Rantz, host of the Jason Rant Show, KTTH out in Seattle in that neck of the woods. That's our great affiliate here on the Guy Benson Show every evening. And, Jason, you know, we were hoping to have you back here for some happier news and some progress <laughs> and some hope out <laughs> there. Too. but. But no, and I feel like it it must kind of give you the the sense of Sisyphus sometimes, right? Just pushing the boulder up the hill, and then it rolls down over you back to the bottom. Then you start all over again.
4: Yeah, except the the boulder just got so much bigger, and I just don't have the upper body strength right now. So I'm going on vacation (laughs) next week, and I'll I'll recover.
0: Hit the gym. (laughs) Hit the gym, maybe uh, start to get swole and see if you can maybe <laughs> handle that boulder a little bit better for the next cycle. But uh, you deserve a vacation. I think everyone involved in this insanity deserves a vacation here at some point coming up. We will talk to you when you're back. Rested and ready, Jason, to have another conversation onward. Love it. Jason rents on the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back with Charles C.W. Cook of National Review. From a very blue part of the country to a now crimson red state of Florida. That's next.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back on this Friday. Thank you very much for tuning in, getting ready for the weekend here together with you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free of charge when the show is over. It's on demand. With us now is Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. He's got a new podcast, the Charles C.W. Cook Podcast, a show about politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts and the United States of America. So a broad array of topics on the podcast for Charles. Good to have you back, sir.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start with a topic that you have written quite a lot about now over recent months. We've spoken about it here on the show as well. A development just yesterday involving a federal court, at least for now, blocking the Biden administration's, I know you've argued and I would say the same thing, flagrantly illegal power grab with this student loan forgiveness scheme, which is even using their terminology, it's a bailout. And at least to my eyes, Charles, this is just an obvious constitutional call, and yet we are seeing the predictable caterwauling from certain quarters. Your analysis, your reaction to this, at least temporary for now, judicial ruling.
5: Well, I I said slightly tongue-in-cheek yesterday on Twitter that my analysis of this decision is that it happened because the decision that Biden took was an unconstitutional exercise of Congress's legislative power and must therefore be vacated, which is what the decision said. And I don't really think I can put it better than that. This (laughs) is not a difficult one, guys. This is not one of these issues where we have to look back to original public meaning or conflicting provisions or wade through the various precedents and disagreements uh, The on the merits case against Biden's executive order is a slam dunk. There is no underlying statutory authority. And this is not, as the press keeps insisting, just something that conservative groups or Republicans uh, have decided. Nancy Pelosi a year ago said very clearly that the president had no such authority. She said many people don't know that, but that The president has no such authority. The Department of Education itself has said that the president has no such authority. The Congress has declined to pass a student loan bailout. In fact, Biden didn't even ask them to. I think that's quite interesting. Last year, when the so-called Build Back Better plan included everything under the sun, $6 trillion of spending, anything Bernie Sanders could imagine, That wasn't even in there. There aren't the votes for it. There have never been the votes for it. And the president in that circumstance is not allowed merely to make it up out of thin air and do it himself. Well, he did do that. He was told internally in the White House he shouldn't. He did it anyway. And now the courts are beginning to strike it down.
0: Now, this could get reversed elsewhere, but maybe not. And I think if you look at where the path might lead – through various circuit courts or even after the Supreme Court, I would imagine that a lot of these judges are likely to come to the plainly obvious conclusion that the court that ruled yesterday has done for the reasons that you've stated, Charles. Maybe the White House will make some squawking about it. They'll be disappointed. They'll attack the court or what have you. They'll file appeals. I do wonder if they might kind of drop this, though, because it seems like the whole point of it, was an election-era buy-off. They got their election. Young people turned out, not in the numbers that sort of the narrative would suggest. I think fewer younger voters turned out than even 2018. But they got their decent, at least relatively decent, election result for the Democrats. If this were to go through, it would be inflationary, and now it looks like there might finally be some progress on the inflation side. Might they just give this up because it's kind of served its purpose and they're not that committed to it, I wonder. I think that's
5: possible, yes. I think it would be worth saying, though, that in some respects that's even worse behavior than honestly trying to make this move and then being blocked by the courts. We've seen an alarming tendency and trend with this president where he takes action that he knows is illegal or has been told is illegal, or in the case of the eviction moratorium, had been told by the Supreme Court was illegal, And he did it anyway. And then when the courts inevitably struck it down, he ran after them. He tried to delegitimize them. He said they were full of extremists, that they were wrong, that they were against the American people, and so on and so forth. Presidents take an oath of office. That oath of office does not have a caveat for election season. And if it is the case, and I don't know if it is, but if it is the case that the Biden administration essentially took a flyer on this, well, perhaps it will go through, but... If it doesn't, at least it will juice turnout in the midterms, then he has violated his oath of office uh, because he has not faithfully executed the laws.
0: I'd argue, at least within this context, he violated it regardless. Whatever the motivation was, it was illegal what he did. And you have built that case, quoting not just people like you and me, but also people on his side of the aisle. Charles, let's shift to your home state. You're a Floridian. You have been for a number of years. And... In a year that was not fabulous for the Republicans nationwide, and we're unpacking all the reasons why. Some very good signs for the Republicans, some very bad signs for the Republicans on Tuesday. The one unequivocally bright red spot was your state. What happened in Florida was extraordinary. I expected a biblical tidal wave, and it was much bigger than I had anticipated, even looking at all the data and telling people to get ready for something special. It was beyond my wildest imagination down there. You have now written, I think accurately so, that at least for the time being, Florida is a red state now. Talk about what happened down there and why you are confident in declaring it really not a battleground right now anymore.
5: Yes, I think biblical is a good word. My estimations as to what was going to happen in Florida went from 7 points to 10 points to 13 points to 15 points and eventually ended up on the day at about 20 points, which is where DeSantis ended up. It's also where the Attorney General candidate ended up. Marco Rubio ended up at 17. It's really important uh, to understand that this victory was not just uh, explained uh, in numbers, but in breadth, uh, the Republicans, both Rubio and DeSantis, flipped all sorts of counties that Republicans simply don't win. Now, we know that they flipped Miami-Dade County, which hasn't gone Republican for 20 years, uh, and which Hillary Clinton won by 29 points in 2016. Uh, and we know that they flipped a lot of the 50-50 counties. And by the counties, way, just in, in Miami-Dade,
0: just to jump in, not only did DeSantis flip it, and, and Rubio as well, DeSantis won it by double digits. I mean, that, right. that is like an extra level of wow. But DeSantis won uh, – and Rubio won Osceola
5: County, which, which is historically a, a highly Puerto Rican county that votes for the Democrats. Uh, they flipped Palm Beach County, the Democratic yeah. stronghold. <laughs> they flipped Pinellas County and Hillsborough County, the Tampa area, Charlie Crist's home county. Um, you know, of the 67 counties in Florida, they flipped all but five, and uh, they won all but five, I should say. But if you look at the the detailed breakdown, this was a, a, a comprehensive victory that I think speaks to the appeal of DeSantis, at least in Florida. Yeah, DeSantis won Hispanics. He won women. He won every single educational category. Now, that's unusual in our politics at the moment. He won college dropouts. He won those with no college. Uh, he won those with college and PhDs um, he won high school dropout all the way from the bottom, all the way to the top. Uh, DeSantis won uh, voters irrespective of their education. Um, so this, this was a, a massive victory. And I think it was um, partly the product of 20 years, 30 years even of good governance in Florida by the Republican party. Republicans have done well here and voters are comfortable with them. I think it was partly the product of good organization from the Republican Party. Um, Republicans in Florida have their act together. They're not just good at getting people out to vote on the day, but they're good at getting people out to vote in early voting and in um, mail voting as well. Um, It was partly the product of people moving in from other states and all of the controversies around COVID-19 and schools and so on. Um, But it's also, and I think people misunderstand this guy, it's also because Ron DeSantis is actually not seen in the state of Florida in the way he's seen in the press. He's just not that controversial. I know that the media likes to see him as this firebrand or this Trump Jr. character, but he's not. He's seen as a a competent governor who leans to the right. Um, And that paid off for him. He did very well during the hurricane. He was seen as a pragmatist during COVID-19. He's not uh, completely ideologically rigid. Um, For example, He's been very interested in environmental issues in Florida, not environmental issues in the sense that term is usually used, which means stopping energy production, making gas more expensive and so on, but cleaning up rivers and swamps and lakes and saving manatees and that sort of thing. Um, So I I think he he benefited from appealing to a broad uh, base of voters and trying to win their votes. And it was telling in his victory speech that he said, That he was honored to have all of these new voters who didn't vote for him last time, um, and he would think about them going forward. Well, that's how you build a winning coalition.
0: He improved his victory margin by 19 points in four years. He barely won by 0.4 percent in 2018, and then he won by about 19.4 percent four years later. You don't do that by accident. You don't do that by being extremely controversial and polarizing. And I think you're right that there's a heavy misreading of him outside of Florida by a lot of folks. And I wanted to talk to someone who actually lives there, who watches the local news, for example, to bring us that perspective. And that man today is Charles C.W. Cook, my guest, senior writer at National Review. Much more with Charles on Florida, Trump and DeSantis. That's all coming up.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. My guest is Charles C.W. Cook. Before we get to another topic, Charles, just quickly, this has been a hobby horse of mine now for a while, especially these last couple days, for obvious reasons. Florida had, what, 7.5 million votes, counted, tabulated, reported, finalized, basically, efficiently, reliably, quickly, by 11 p.m. Eastern, in a giant state spanning two time zones, And yet we have smaller states with smaller populations taking days and days and days in this Kafkaesque black box type system with random dumps at different times and people trying to read tea leaves about what it means. I find it absolutely disgraceful that any state still has a system like that, especially when there is a clear, fair, successful system in place in a place like Florida. I just don't understand why there's not a copy-paste effect. I'm not saying the federal government should require anyone to do anything, but just look at the actual logistics of it, the mechanics of it. I don't understand why anyone would choose what we're seeing in Nevada, California, Arizona, elsewhere.
5: No, and look, I'm watching what's happening in Arizona, Nevada, California, and elsewhere with disgust. I think it's worth our remembering that Americans in those states and others watched in 2000 as Florida blew in. They watched Florida with disgust, the famous disaster in the 2000 presidential election. And Florida took a hard look at itself and resolved to fix it. And it's done so over 20 years. Now, the main uh, driver of that change was Jeb Bush, who was an excellent governor of Florida between 1998 and 2006. And he put in place the alterations that led to Florida having the best election system in the country. But this didn't just happen. It didn't just drop from the sky. It's not all the way back to time immemorial, a fact of the universe that Florida has a good election system. It was a conscious choice. And there is absolutely no reason that Arizona and Nevada and California and everywhere else can't do the same thing. I've said semi-tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually a good idea that every state that is worried about their election system should today call up Jeb Bush in Miami, he's not especially busy, and pay him to fly out and tell them how he did it. You know, this is, this is a, a, a problem in America because there are a lot of people out there who have lost trust in our election system, and most of the claims that they make are wrong. You know, for example, the 2020 election, it was not stolen. Joe Biden won it. But when you have a population that is predisposed to mistrust its electoral system, the worst thing you can do is what Arizona is doing now and Nevada is doing now. These opaque, inconsistent staccato systems that no one can follow, uh, that take days if not weeks to count the ballots. I saw this morning uh, a prediction that it might be Thanksgiving before we know who controls the House of Representatives. That is pathetic. And it's a choice, not an inevitability.
0: Fully agreed, fully endorsed. Charles, a few minutes left here. I spent a lot of the early part of the program today reacting to the screed from President Trump about <laughs> Governor DeSantis. Uh, it was quite something yesterday. We reacted to it on Brett Bayer's panel last night. We sort of blew out our plans and only talked about that. It's a very hot topic. Another post today about Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. The president is sort of on a what would we call it, a truthing bender because it's not Twitter, it's his platform, Truth Social. Very quickly, Charles, your overall analysis of what is going on here and given the fact that he's obviously obsessed with DeSantis and very angry with DeSantis and trying to bait him into a big, ugly, early fight, what's your best advice to Governor DeSantis? Whether he's planning to run for president or not, how should he be reacting to it? I I think... At least in my opinion, he's doing the right thing so far. But go ahead.
5: DeSantis should ignore him until he's ready to get into the race and make his case as to why he should be the presidential nominee. There's no way DeSantis can eventually uh, stay away from a fight. If DeSantis wants to be president, I have no inside information there. I don't know. I assume he does. Uh, If he wants to be president, he's going to have to beat Trump in a primary, and that means brawling. He can't play the Ted Cruz game from 2016 and saying, I don't think anyone wants to see a fight between us. But for now, ignore him. DeSantis is busy. We had a hurricane yesterday. DeSantis is running around the state organizing the response to it. It was notable yesterday that when Trump was sending out his thoughts on Truth Social, DeSantis was tweeting, if you have children, stay away from downed power lines. Please don't mm-hmm. put generators near your house and so on and so forth. That's not an affect. That's what he's actually doing at the moment. I mean, we, we have... The effects of the hurricane here. Thankfully, there was no damage, but it was rainy and windy and crazy and people lost power and connectivity. Um, DeSantis is busy and he's about to be busy um, for the beginning of the year because the Florida legislature, which meets once a year for two months, is going to be in session in March and April. There's quite a lot of stuff to get done. So if I were Ron DeSantis, I wouldn't respond to Trump when he's crazy because there's nothing to respond to what on earth do you say to that missive yesterday <laughs> but i also wouldn't respond to him in general i would wait for my
0: moment i would work out what i want to say and i would stick to it i tend to agree with all of that and we will see what he chooses to do but right now he's doing the day job which i think serves him very very well and the people of florida obviously agree based on what happened this week down in that state one of the residents of that state is Charles C.W. Cook from National Review. Check out his podcast, the Charles C.W. Cook Podcast. It's on a whole variety of subjects, as we mentioned. Also, it comes with a fabulous accent. Charles, great to talk to you, as always. We'll talk again soon, I hope.
5: Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: And the Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour, Cat Tim, Fridays with Cat, straight ahead.
2: o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
0: Happy Friday, happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. 5 to 6 is the happy hour brought to you by The Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. They've expanded a ton. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast, free of charge, every day on demand. That includes bonus Benson on the weekends. So be sure to check that out. With us now is Kat Timp for Fridays with Kat. She, of course, is a Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld, every night at 11 on Fox News Channel, co-host of Tyrus and Timp, the podcast available along with ours at foxnewspodcasts.com. You can go to guybensonshow.com also for our podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts, you can type in our podcast or Tyrus and Timp. You've got all sorts of options. Kat from New York, hello. Hi. I'm very excited to have you here. I would like to start... This edition of Fridays with Cat, with a comment I saw that you made on social media that made me chuckle, which Mm. is you get comments, particularly from dudes on the Internet, who are basically hitting on you saying, oh, your husband's a lucky man. Right. Which is such a weird
6: way to say I want to have sex with your wife.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean that is kind of the message that is being sent perhaps in a more civilized and polite way, but that is kind of the gist of it. You had a response to that sort of like, is he a lucky
6: man? I said uh, a lot of dudes on the Internet uh, sure refer to my husband as a lucky man for him being the guy who has to drive 10 plus hours to my dad's place every Christmas so I can bring my geriatric feral cat who has too many health issues to fly, (laughs) which is true. That will be happening this year and it will not be the first time.
0: The less glamorous side.
6: Yes, exactly. Of
0: being married to cat, where you're driving ten hours, probably right. inclement weather with yes. this uh, lovely jeans,
6: but it not nice. And to be clear, I don't drive. Like ever? I haven't driven in like nine years. I used to drive, but since I moved to New York, I never really have. So like, I'm not sure I remember how. So he really is driving me, and the cat. Like the cat is the reason.
0: Yeah. So he's he's basically a pet chauffeur and not like a little jaunt an hour somewhere. That's no. a very long and time.
6: like when we get there, we're in Detroit.
0: <laughs> Congratulations on your final destination here. Well Cam. Macomb,
6: Michigan, technically now. But yeah, like it's not like we're driving ten hours to sunny Florida either.
0: That's for Christmas or that's for Thanksgiving for
6: Christmas okay, mm-hmm.
0: Thanksgiving, what do you do for Thanksgiving typically well, no you're not you're not a huge Christmas person to begin with. We'll get to that later, but Thanksgiving, are you any more sentimental about that?
6: Oh, I have zero sentiment about Thanksgiving for the past few uh, years we've gone on a trip um but what we're doing this year is because uh well, first of all, we went on our honeymoon, so like we, we went on a long trip and whatever. We're gonna go to my in law's house. We're gonna go to his parents' house. Because okay. I, I also like insist that we go to my dad's every Christmas. So I feel like I need to be better at marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: they're like, okay, we'll go to your parents' house for yeah. this major holiday. Yeah. And I would bet they I, I don't know them very well. I met them briefly at the wedding. I know Cam. I just get the sense that they might take Thanksgiving. A little bit more seriously than you do and put yes. on a very nice spread and have it be very traditional am i right about that yes
6: they absolutely do they oh, are I the most that. normal people like emotionally like well adjusted like my in-laws are named bob and kathy <laughs> <laughs> like those are the names of your in-laws
0: <laughs> yeah it's a generic in-law names right and do you get along with them well because i i, I we're friends so i think i can say this like when it comes to like emotional stability, chillness, that's not really your bag. So to no, speak. No.
6: But yeah, I do actually. We do actually get along. Uh his mom actually watched Fox and like knew who I was before when before we started dating.
0: It's the same thing with my in-laws. Yeah. They were like, "Wait, what?"
6: So that gave me that gave me a huge plus, a huge mm-hmm. bonus. Like
0: a leg up. It's like, "Okay, they know you you sort of like the public persona already." Have they been pleased with the private persona?
6: Right. Well, that's the thing. Is the public persona? I mean, it's. I. Well, it depends what what is being like. What's said about me? Like, you know, I'm not actually like what Greg said. Like, I don't inject drugs, et cetera. But I, yeah, I mean, I. I think that they like that. You know, I'm someone that I can you know talk about certain things. I know what's going on, um, and and all that. I mean, yeah, and
0: and their son loves you, so that's kind of yeah. The most and even
6: thing. though he's obviously like the golden boy, right? He's the golden boy. Okay, come on. Like Cam is like this D one athlete. He went to West Point. He's a veteran. He's good looking. So he's the golden boy. So I, you know, I'm, I'm so lucky to have uh, <laughs> to be good enough.
0: <laughs> yeah. To to then have him be called the lucky one by the internet. The trolls. G- internet
6: creeps. I'm like, you have no idea. Like I am not for the week. I am not for the week. That's right.
0: Yeah, that's right. That was never going to work. Someone who's going to be weak and not really sure of themselves or not really sure. It just was not going to happen. You need a very specific personality type for this to work.
6: All these, you know, like beta type guys, like I will just steamroll over you and you won't even know (laughs) what happened.
0: (laughs) I want to ask you about another topic before we get to actually a surprise edition of Sincerely Cat because Mm. producer Christine has a dilemma. But we talked about this on the home stretch earlier in the week. I don't know if you saw the story, but apparently Gen Z and younger millennials are basically trying to end the tradition of going out after work for drinks with your colleagues, saying they don't want to do that, they value their private life, they don't want to hang out more with people at work, they don't want to talk about work, they want to keep a big separation between work and life. And my take was I generally get that. I understand certain boundaries are healthy – But I also think if you don't open yourself up to the possibility of making good friends at work, you're missing out. Like, hello, we're having this conversation right right here. We met at work. And also you might be limiting your opportunity to actually advance in a career because older generations who will be in charge for quite a while understand the value of, like, getting to know individuals as people, not just in the office setting. I just wonder if you have a philosophy on this.
6: Yeah, I think that you, you know, you should for several reasons. I mean, it doesn't have to be like the most fun, you know, to go to like a work drinks thing because you shouldn't be like, you know, going there and getting blackout. But to, you know, hang out, get to know people. But then also, yeah, like you don't have to hang out with ev- like everybody at work doesn't have to be your friend, but you can make friends at work. Right. It's just such a weird thing to be like, you work with me. Therefore, we have nothing in common. Like I can think of one thing you have in common already. <laughs> <Take> <laughs> I don't eight understand hours
0: a day, at least in the same place. For the same reason, at least, you know, relatively yeah. speaking. Because you're cause you're just to make it clear, and I gave this example the other day on the show. Like you and I and Dagan and Emily and Kennedy were all in Europe together right. for Kennedy's birthday. Right. And we had the best time. Yes. And we would not know each other if not for Fox, if not for being colleagues, and like my life would be less fun, less rich in terms of like my my Happiness, right? If not for that, like a bunch of you guys are coming down from New York for the Christmas party. Like, I, I love this stuff, and I, I would hate for people to close themselves off to that.
6: Absolutely, and I never would have met your husband, Adam,
0: <laughs> right? And you guys are like closer than, than I, we are. I now.
6: love Adam,
0: I know this is what happens, people <laughs> like him better. It's fine, it's fine. Uh, cat <laughs> I do want to ask you about Greg because mm-hmm. you guys are close,
6: yeah, right? we're very close friends,
0: <laughs> like, you hang out. Quite a lot.
6: Yeah, we do. Yeah, Greg is. Greg is. Uh, you know, we're like it's like family at this point. Literally, we are related now because my dog is his dog's uncle.
0: Mm. Uh, I'm sure that's how that works. But okay, no, it is. It's true. Okay.
6: Um. But yeah, yeah. Greg and I are really close, and I think that that is something that helps the show. You know what I mean? Like if I would have just if the only time I was ever spending with Greg was during that 45 minutes that we filmed the show, that'd probably be, like, a little weird.
0: You know, the chemistry has to be deeper than that. Right. Especially given the types of jokes that fly back and forth. I'm just waiting for my invite sometime to the house up wherever it is, at the lake or upstate.
6: Oh, yeah. Maybe one day. We have a great time. And now Greg's, like, friends with some of my friends, like Keith, and it's just... It's a wonderful. And, yeah, imagine if, like, Gen Z, like, I don't want to hang out with anybody for my job. Like, okay, why? It's because they're probably going to raves and doing Molly all night.
0: I think that's probably a very specific band of people, right? Like, a very small fraction of any generation who's like, into the big circuit party scene. When we come back, we'll bring in producer Christine. It's time for Sincerely, cat some life advice. If you have little kids, maybe not the best segment coming up ahead of the holidays. Wink, wink. We'll get to all of that when we come back.
2: The Guy Benson Show.
0: Kat Timpf is our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Okay, it's time for Sincerely Cat, where some advice is needed by producer Christine from Kat. This is actually a callback to a topic that you and I talked about. Almost a year ago, Kat, and, and you sort of...
6: Oh, my gosh. Also, some... Christine just texted me. She said, my in-laws are Bob and Kathy. I told you, everyone's in-laws are Bob and Kathy. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. No,
0: that's fine. <laughs> uh, so you have made your position very clear, not just on Christmas, but Santa and kids and that whole thing. And just spoiler alert, if you have small kids in the room or whatever, this conversation might be slightly sensitive, especially given the bluntness <laughs> of Cat Timph on all of it. All right, Christine... You're up. What happened, and what's your question for Kat?
1: Oh, Cat. Okay. I was in the car driving my daughter home from gymnastics last night, and she looked at me and said, Mommy, I have to ask you something. And I said, Go ahead. You can ask me anything. And she said, Julia from school told me that Santa is not real. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, oh, is that what she said? And she said, yeah. And I told her, of course she's wrong. Like, you know, my mommy and daddy told me that, you know, Santa's real. And, you know, because we give her presents from Santa and then from us. So then she looked at me and said, mommy, I want you to pinky (gasps) me right now that (gasps) Santa is real. And I did. No! (sighs) Why? (laughs) Why? I I panic. How old
6: I is panic? she? She's nine. She's not that young. She's not that young. We'll no, she to... wants
0: the truth. I, I'm like,
6: coming I... over and I'm gonna tell her the truth, <laughs> <laughs> Aunt Pat. Yeah, I, like you got no. She's come on. I, so I can
0: You gotta buy her something.
6: You gotta say I'm well, sorry. You... I messed up and try to buy her love. I, well, I don't wh- think...
0: What did Bobby say? So, because c- yeah. Christine's husband was informed of this exchange.
1: He thought I was completely wrong. He's like, "I cannot believe you did that. You lied to her and she's going to remember that." And I said, "Well, what what should I have done?" He's like, "You
6: should have told the truth." But I didn't I could not be that person. I couldn't Well, do it sounds it. like Julia already was that person. <laughs> and all you need to do, and this is why I will never get into the situation by telling all my kids there's no Santa.
0: I will like tell the them get-go.
6: Yeah, I'll say there there's no Santa. And, uh, like, you want
0: their first words to be, there is no Santa?
6: Well, I'm always going to tell them the truth, because I remember I was in the first grade when, I, when somebody told me, or kindergarten, somebody told me Santa wasn't real. And I asked my mom, and she was like, no. She told me the tooth fairy wasn't real, and I just used my deductive reasoning skills. I was like, okay, no tooth fairy. And then I said, no Easter bunny. And she said, no. I said, no Santa. And then I said, no Jesus. <laughs> oh, boy. And gosh. this might be why I'm a heathen.
0: Yeah, I, well, I think there's... there's <sighs> One of those things is not like the others. In, I mean, I, again,
6: view. okay, like I'm five, but also maybe, you know, I think you got it. I'm sorry. You're going to have a tough Friday. Did you not tell her yet? No. Oh, my no. gosh. You have I to. Can. But she's going to be like, Mommy, you lied to me. You, well, Pinky, you look, did.
1: You know, <laughs> as a kid, <laughs> you, you know, just it's right. a Pinky promises everything. Like, that's everything to her. See, I am. my
0: My theory on this is... And as I mentioned last year when we had this conversation not involving Megan, I figured out logistically Santa couldn't be real when I was five. And I cornered my mother, and I was like, you told me and you taught me never to lie, so don't Uh, lie to me. And she just, like, panicked, and she told me the truth, and I kept that from my brother for a long time because my parents were like, don't tell him. And It was fine. I was able to enjoy Christmas. I still love Christmas much more than Cat, who enjoys very few things of sentimental value. That's fine. I think in this case – the thing is, Megan is nine years old. Yeah. Is, that, what, is that fourth grade? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yes. she's in fourth grade. One of her friends said the thing. Deep down, by the time you are in fourth grade or nine, like, she's a smart kid. She's not a super naive kid. I think she has very strong suspicions. Yeah. And she was kind of giving you an opportunity, Christine, to level yeah. with her and to tell her the truth, kind of knowing instinctively what the truth is. And seeing what you would do, and I think she was probably partially reassured that you pinky swore, like, okay, I'm glad that Santa's real, but also like, ugh, maybe that's not real. I think this was her giving you an opportunity at a an appropriate age to break the news.
1: Yeah. But, oh do now i mean it's too close to christmas you guys i can't you can't
6: no you you think you're thinking of keeping this going till after christmas bro maybe on new year's (laughs) eve i'll tell her bro like like (laughs) absolutely not this happened when last night you owe her an apology tonight tonight all right you say i I, I made a horrible mistake You know, I'm sorry, but I want to now rectify it by proactively being honest with you.
0: See, and I think there's a way to do it a little bit more softly. Like you can say, hey, Megan, I wanted to talk to you about something. Yesterday you asked me a really good question, and it was a fair question, and I didn't tell you the truth. And the reason I didn't is because Santa is so magical, and it's such a special story to so many people when kids are little, and I just didn't want to – Burst the bubble, and it means that you're getting older. And so I just sort of panicked and kept the magic going just a little bit longer. But because you asked me to pinky promise, and because I want my word and my truth to matter to you now and always when you're growing up, I want to tell you the truth. You asked me something, and I just have to tell you, here's the truth, and I'm sorry that I wasn't more open about it. But one day when you have young kids... Maybe you'll understand, or she'll go Something my route, like <laughs> or or she'll go a very different route.
6: But you have to, you have to, you have okay, to. About, the longer you think... wait, the worse it
0: is. That's I think that's right.
1: All right, what if we time Cat tonight and she just breaks the news?
0: I, no, I'm not going to be a stranger. Talking. <laughs> it's like, here's a stranger from mommy's work who has some special news, Megan. No, it has to be, has to be very heartfelt from you yeah. where you explain why you did the pinky swear and why it wasn't like a malicious lie, but she asked an honest question and she deserved the truth, and you thought about it and you've been thinking about it and you wanted to just. Say it. And also, like, don't tell your friends. People learn about this at different times, so keep this to yourself, but this is what you and mom and dad now all know together for our family. Something like well, that. Then,
1: well, then I guess the elf on the shelf is scrapped as well. She still believes in it. She thinks an elf comes every night. What? And watches her. Yeah. Does
6: she? Does she, we, does we, she we, though? Does she, though? Yes.
1: She thinks the elf comes every night and watches, or it comes in the morning I... and goes to the North Pole at night.
0: I think sometimes kids, and I'm not being maybe too cynical here, and maybe I'm wrong about this. I think sometimes kids are happy to do a little bit of acting themselves to play along with something that they know is like a fun family thing and they kind of want to believe in, but deep down, maybe they don't around like Holiday Mystique and the elves and the Santa and all of that. I think sometimes kids are willing to kind of, go along with it and maybe that's the case or maybe she'll be devastated Christine and it'll be a very difficult weekend but she asked it was straight up yes or no and I think maybe the the pinky swear needs to be unpinkied a little bit
6: yeah and then you have to cut off your pinky (laughs) isn't that what that means
0: mommy's gonna now mutilate herself isn't that what that means
6: pinky swear means if you're lying I, I, you cut off your pinky or is that just something that i learned as a kid
0: i know i i, think I are gonna, didn't know that we're going <laughs> no on the mutilation <laughs> yes on the telling of the truth cat tim fridays with cat on the guy Benson show catch gutfeld tonight 11 p.m eastern fox news channel cat thank you
6: oh thank you
0: <laughs> we'll talk again soon and we'll be right back
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: It's the happy hour Friday edition here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Earlier in the program, we checked in live with Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent, traveling with the president live in Cambodia. Interesting conversation with Peter about what the president is doing over there, the White House reaction to the midterms. Here's part of my conversation with our colleague, Peter Ducey. Peter, why is the president over there right now? What's on the agenda?
3: They're going to have this ASEAN summit here in
0: Cambodia, where basically
3: they're going to gather a bunch of Southeast Asian countries and leaders to try to convince them to do business with the U.S. and not China. And there will be later in the week a Biden and Xi meeting when we move on to Indonesia uh, and Bali. So props to whoever picks the locations for this trip. <laughs> um but but, basically, you coming uh, there will be some talk about North Korean nuclear threats uh, but the the big picture is just, hey, China is uh, make, trying to make inroads with you guys uh, we'd like We'd like a shot as well to not let them just completely uh, take over this part of the world.
0: So that's the Cambodian part of the swing. You mentioned Indonesia and Bali. I've actually been to Bali. Peter, I, I wonder if you might get your hair braided the way that they sometimes do. I guess we'll see when you're back on the air upon your return. But when <laughs> those world leaders get together in Indonesia, obviously some huge issues outstanding. We've seen some updates in Russia and, and Ukraine specifically, some, some more retreats from the Russians. I'd imagine that will be a subject of conversation, among other things, the economy, global inflation, uh, energy production and that sort of thing. What is the White House previewing for Bali? Bali.
3: Well, the the big focus is becoming this uh, meeting on the sidelines with Biden and Xi, and it, it's really interesting because Karine Jean-Pierre is not telling us any specific issues that the two of them are going to talk about, but she's saying this meeting is required so that Biden and Xi can deepen their communication, which is very confusing to me because Last week on the campaign trail, we heard President Biden bragging about how he has spent more time with Xi than any world leader ever. And so why now do they need to deepen their communication ties? Like, why is he talking about all this time that he spent with Xi if he or the U.S. don't benefit from that at all? Because that's what it
0: sounds like. Yeah, that's a good question. Um I wonder if she could answer it. I'm not necessarily convinced that there would be a good persuasive answer forthcoming, but I guess that's the, uh, the top-of-mind answer, if you will, that they've come up with, uh, deepening ties or deepening communications. Got it. Meanwhile, Peter, from a political perspective here back home, we heard from the president following the midterm elections. Obviously, the Democrats are feeling like they have survived in a way that they were absolutely – uh, not expecting to. Uh, I know Biden said that he was always optimistic. Uh, f- apparently, that's not really true. Uh, he wasn't really planning to talk about the elections right after. But then things went the way that they did. And They said, actually, you know what? He's going to talk after all. But is there a sense to your eye, to your ear, that there's maybe an extra pep in the step of the president or the administration around the relative electoral success that their party enjoyed on Tuesday? Oh, totally, because President Biden is saying is not going to do anything
3: differently, uh, and he thinks – but again, you go back to like a week ago. He was telling voters that this batch of elections, nationwide elections, was not going to be a referendum on him. But then the elections happen, and he comes out and says, you know what? The results show that I don't have to do anything differently, and I'm not going to. And so I I think he does have a pep in his death. And these international trips are his bread and butter. Because he's the one who came in saying, oh, we have to restore dignity on the world stage after four years of somebody shaking things up too much. And so the combo of the midterms not being as bad for Dems as they thought and just getting to go and fit in these meetings with his counterparts I think there's a there's a lot more enthusiasm here uh, than they were planning on
0: a question that he gets a lot and he keeps coming back with the same answer I intend to run again in 2024 he's added a little bit more color saying uh, that'll be a decision early next year we're going to talk about it with the family but he intends to run I know a lot of people are out there saying there's no way that he can he's too old he's slowing down too much But I do think that maybe the midterm outcome has maybe breathed new life into the idea that perhaps he could run again after all. I think he wants to. I think it's other people who don't want him to. That's my theory of it. I'm not asking you to weigh in one way or another on on my theory, Peter. But I would imagine if you are of the mindset that Biden wants to run again, what happened on Tuesday is probably helpful to that cause in some way. That interview with Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent, available online, guybensonshow.com. The podcast is free every day, the entire show, start to finish, no charge to you, totally free on demand. guybensonshow.com, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Producer Christine is about to go through a breakup of sorts, not with her husband. Don't worry, but she is concerned about it. I am too, actually. We'll explain next.
2: For the full interview and more, go to guybensonshow.com.
0: Home stretch on this Friday. Minutes to go until the weekend together here on the Guy Benson Show. Podcast is free every day, on demand, for free. Podcast is on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcast. Bonus Benson, also free on the weekends as well. Well, tonight I am hopping on a flight and flying back across the Atlantic. I'll be in London next week for a number of days. I'm doing a couple of talks about our election. I'm like, hey, come on over and explain it to us. I said, sure. Of course, the challenge is I have to figure out Exactly what happened. I'm still wondering about certain things. But I'll do my best for some of our British cousins over there. And I'll also be hosting our show from the Fox News London Bureau Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. So looking forward to that. Hopefully we will have some safe, easy travels over there tonight. Meanwhile, a quick note about last night. We often encourage you to follow us on social media here at the show, at Guy Benson Show Twitter and Instagram which, of course, you should if you're on those platforms. Send us a follow, at Guy Benson Show. I also have my own personal feed, at Guy P. Benson, on Twitter and Instagram. Same handle for both. And if you follow me on either of those platforms, you might have seen a couple of photos that I put out there from an event that I attended. So I was on the panel with Brett Baer on Special Report, then raced across the street, basically, over to Union Station, where there was a big event. It was the annual gala And Dinner, now named after the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, of the Federalist Society, which is the conservative legal organization that has been so impactful and so influential, especially in recent years. And it was packed. They really turned Union Station into something breathtaking. And Union Station is kind of on hard times in some ways right now, but they transformed the space. It was really beautiful, absolutely jam-packed. Apparently, the event sells out very quickly. I was the guest of Americans for Prosperity. They had a couple of tables, and they invited me to come, and I said, absolutely. I've always kind of wanted to go to one of these things. They seem very nerdy and very cool, very much up my alley. So I went, and it was pretty remarkable. I saw Senator Mike Lee fresh off his big win in his Senate race this year, so went over to congratulate him and chat with his wife, Sharon, who's lovely, I saw Senator McConnell, who was there, and sort of gave him a wave across the room. There were multiple Supreme Court justices in the House. Justice Gorsuch was there. He's actually my favorite justice. I wanted to say hello, but he was sitting and talking to someone during the opportunity that I might have had, and I didn't want to interrupt. It just didn't seem like the body language was right, so I said, not this time. Speakers during the event included Justice Alito and Justice Barrett. And Amy Coney Barrett had a very funny line. She had a very sustained, long, loud standing ovation, especially from the women in the room. You could hear them really going wild for her as a conservative female jurist. And when the applause died down, she said it was so nice to hear so much noise not being made by protesters outside her house, (laughs) which is kind of a pretty good line. And then at one other portion of the evening, kind of while people were milling around and making the rounds and chatting with each other, Right near my table, I looked over and I saw someone that I recognized, kind of standing by himself, at least for a quick moment. So I took the opportunity and ducked over to introduce myself to Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And to my surprise, he recognized me and I guess has seen some of my work and had a few nice words, which was awesome. And maybe working on an opportunity to go meet him at greater length at some point. And I can always report back if anything's on the record. But that was a very cool opportunity, and I'm grateful to AFP and the Federalist Society for having me last night. And it was just kind of crazy because I talk about the Supreme Court all the time. You talk about these justices. I had never, I think, seen in person any of them in my life. And then here were four of them in the same room together, not dressed in their robes. In fact, Justice Barrett was in this beautiful sort of bedazzled or like sequenced gold dress. She looked very glamorous, very fabulous. And it was quite a departure from the black robe that we're used to seeing in all those stock photos and sort of the artist renderings of what happens in the court. So kind of a cool night for me last night. And I wanted to share just a little window since I had posted a couple photos, figured I would mention that here. In the meantime, before we go, right before the break, I tease that producer Christine is on the brink of a significant breakup. And I kind of left everyone hanging on what that meant. I did assure everyone it's not her marriage. Everything's fine. But, Christine, what is this breakup that you've been teasing?
1: Well, I just want to point out one thing about both of our nights. Your night was uh, glamorous with all the justices, and my night was pretty much on the road to ruining my daughter's childhood. So thank you. Really happy about that.
0: Well, except as we discussed, hang on, as we discussed with Kat Timpf earlier this hour, in case people are just tuning in and don't get the reference – I don't think, and earmuffs for kids, just I want to always make sure that we give the disclaimer and a little warning here. Earmuffs for little kids. It does not ruin a kid's childhood to, at some appropriate moment, learn the truth about Santa. It is not a life or childhood ruining event. Your daughter isn't four. She isn't five. She isn't even six. She's nine. It's okay. I knew much younger. Didn't ruin my childhood. I had a very happy, great childhood so don't – I think that you are making this more of an issue and getting overly anxious, and I think you will do the right thing and rip off the Band-Aid and tell the truth, and it will be fine, and everything will be okay, even in just a few weeks where you'll have your first Christmas of a new era, and it will be wonderful.
1: Yeah, that's if I even do this, but sure.
0: You need to do it. <laughs> we'll work, You need, you we're, need we're, to do it.
1: Okay, we're going to work on that. But first, I might not have somebody to really talk to about it. That's why I think – you're going to be my go-to for now on because my therapist Roy and I are breaking up at the end of this year.
0: Did he and finally have I, enough? He's like, "Look, I deal with a lot of people, but this is too much."
1: <laughs> no, he gets a kick out of me. I, I think. I mean, I also pay him, but uh, he is no longer. <laughs> <laughs> he's no longer in my insurance, and for me to pay out of pocket, it's like hundreds of dollars a week that. I just simply cannot afford. And obviously there are going to be other therapists within network that I can use. But he has been like, you know, a lifeline, a godsend to me, has really, really helped me. And I'm sure people out there know when you break up with your therapist, it's just like breaking up like a friendship or a relationship. It is very, very hard, traumatic. And, um, Guy, I'm just going to, you know, have to lean on you as my best friend and my therapist just a little more.
0: Well, I will remind you that I am unlicensed in this capacity. I have also been uncompensated, but I wonder, like, what were you paying out of pocket when you were in network? Oh, it's just like 25 bucks. Okay, so that's not bad. So I feel like every home stretch in which we tackle one of your life problems, you can just Venmo me 25 bucks, and we'll call it even. So I'll be unlicensed but partially compensated at a level that you're used to paying.
1: But wouldn't I have to Venmo you twenty five dollars a day then?
0: Well, maybe. Monday through Friday? I would no. say I would say on average I'd be making what, seventy-five bucks a week off of this? Which seems <laughs> like a pittance given how much emotional labor this involves.
1: You know, today this this hour is supposed to be the happy hour, and I'm not very happy today in the five o'clock hour. I'm just putting it out there. Hopefully Monday will be a little better.
0: I actually feel like if you were to send me Five or twenty-five bucks per session. I would probably have to give, honestly, five or ten of those dollars to Wyatt. I feel like oh. Wyatt probably gets a lot. Wyatt, what's your rate? <laughs> Are you going to make a better offer here than I have to Christine? I don't know, but I mean, I definitely. Sometimes feel like I need to be compensated for all these phone calls sometimes that I get, but it's all, all in love. And all I'm saying is that I'm busy this weekend, Christine, so with your impending issues with your daughter this weekend, I cannot help. I am not available, but if you need me, you could always text me. I'm just imagining right now Christine <laughs> arriving at Wyatt's well-appointed <laughs> therapy office – where he is, of course, dressed well in perhaps a cardigan sweater, and you exchange pleasantries, and then he invites you to sit down on his couch, and you just start you know, going off about whatever guy or anyone else that you work with, and Wyatt sits there very quietly, contemplatively, nodding his head, jotting down a few notes. And how does that make you feel, Cookie? And then it's another 15 minutes nonstop of talking, and then, oh, look, our time is up. Thank you very much. You can drop the check on your way out with my assistant. And uh, this could be just an, another little iteration in the multifaceted career of Quiet Wyatt. What do you think? Everyone's speech.
1: Oh no, I thought why I was gonna answer. Um, I mean the thing is I kind of without the actually seeing him in person, I kinda of do that. Usually the text messages for YY from Monday through Friday start I think today started about seven AM, seven fifteen. They start. Does he
0: leave you does he leave you on red? Like are you just sending text after text after text and there's just no response because he's trying to establish boundaries, which is something we were just talking no. about on Fridays with Kat?
1: He's pretty good about getting back to me. Look, I'm looking now. This morning it started at 7.15. I think I gave about one, two, three, four, five messages until he wrote back. So.
0: Well, you know yeah. he's not asleep, right? He's been up for hours by 7.15. <laughs> well, so.
1: That's what I'm a little perturbed about. Why did it take 40 minutes for him to respond? Well, because he's in the I middle of reading
0: up. the print edition of the Wall Street Journal over his Rook coffee. Cover to cover, that's what he does, and you're interrupting his flow, so he just checks it, he says, okay, Cookie's blowing me up, I'll wait, I'll get back to her, she can wait, I think that's probably almost part of his morning routine. I think we probably need to go. This is, this is spun off into quite an elaborate scenario, although strangely, almost creepily plausible. I'm off to London, doing the show from the UK, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We will continue to follow all the electoral stuff as it, seeped in at this excruciating rate. Have a good weekend. Try to, like, unplug from the politics just a little bit. Sanity check. Go touch some grass. Go be with people that you love. We'll get back into the madness on Monday on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening.